Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to explore this new phase of life with you all. So, over the past few years, I have gained a whole new perspective on life, and I've realized that life is too short to not be enjoying yourself while doing great things. So, come along with me as I explore this new lens through fitness, photography, reading, traveling, cannabis, and much more. Looking forward to the journey, guys. And remember, only positivity. Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to kick off podcast number 38 on this playlist that I'm looking to launch called Elevated Thoughts. Now, before diving into the book and everything for today, let's go ahead and start with the level set. So, you know, as I endeavor upon pursuing knowledge and life experience in this next phase of life through cannabis, fitness, photography, traveling, many more things, one habit that I've really formed is reading. So this podcast essentially goes through some of the books I've been reading as of late, taking those lessons learned and applying them to experiences in my life. So before diving into part two of the history book for today, let's go and start with the story. So, you know, as I, as I was growing up, uh, I was involved in a lot of activities, uh, you know, soccer, orchestra, um, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. Um, I was heavily involved in my um, religious situation as well, too, right? So a lot of activities, um, we were constantly moving um, as kids, and my parents were always driving us from one activity to the next. Um, but one of the activities I um, found particularly irritating was anything that involved singing. Now, I wish I was a great singer, and maybe in hindsight, I wish I trained that um, skill a little bit more, but I'm really not a good singer. And um, one thing about my brother is he's a great singer, right? So he was always involved in plays, um, and he was the main character in a lot of the plays from elementary school, right? But me, um, you know, as I, was, as I was auditioning for plays and whatnot, I was always given roles like salesman number two or um, police officer, whatever, right? I was always giving, given something that didn't really have like a name associated with it, just some kind of background character for one or two scenes. So um, going forward to middle school, um, you know, I was, my parents always implored us to be like the best or be in the top tier of what we did. So, you know, if I played soccer, you had to be on varsity. If I um, was in orchestra, it was always, you know, chamber strings or concert one, right? So um, coming, to, coming to singing, my parents wanted me to be in um, honors course, right? And so um, generally, as an, as an elective in middle school, I took chorus, right? So to be part of that, that musical um, environment. But I didn't really like singing. But anyway, so I, I auditioned for um, honors chorus. So I'm, you know, at, in the auditions, we're all lined up in the hallway. Um, the teacher calls in um, one person at a time. You perform some type of technical singing where it's like you perform a scale octaves whatever and then you you have prepared your own solo piece now so everyone's going in everyone's going in i'm the last one to sign up i'm on the very last time slot um so so i get in there and i'm hearing everyone like absolutely crush it in front of me and you know naturally my mom was always telling me i was a good singer so i thought i was a good singer right so i go in there um and i do my thing and so i do the technical part of it and so the piece I had prepared, and being a good Indian boy, was the Indian National Anthem. 
So I got in there and I sang the Indian National Anthem um, and I butchered it. I completely sucked. And I knew I, I didn't even sing it in like um, a vocal way. I was just kind of like talk saying it, right? So, you know, coming, coming a few days later, uh, they post the results, right? And I find out that I was the only one who didn't make honors chorus. And th yep, that was it. So I, um, I actually kind of stopped, you know, having chorus as part of my curriculum after that point, um, because I just really didn't like it, you know, and it just wasn't something I wanted to train any further. And I think it put me a little bit too far out of my comfort zone. Um, and naturally, like I said, I'm just not a good singer, but to this day, you know, my family, they'll goof on me being, and, and we'll bring that story up, right? I sounded terrible in that audition. Um, and it was just a fobby thing to do all around singing an Indian national anthem. So yeah, a little lighthearted humor before we get into all this stuff. So anyway, um, we'll come back. We'll come back to the book for today. And um, you know, last week we went through part one of the religions book. And before we get into the the more mainstream religions, um, we're going to go in through one more category of uh, ancient and classical beliefs. So you know, one thing that really sticks out to me is is the themes throughout history, right? technology, um, climate, politics, uh, education, as those things progress, um, they begin to weave themselves into every facet of society, including um, religion, right? Uh, so we come back to today's topic. So today's topic is going to be ancient and classical beliefs, and that occurs around uh, 30,000 BCE. So, so still, still very early on um, in terms of uh, recorded or historical religions that are captured throughout history. So, a couple points is you know we move away, we move away from uh, the hunter-gatherer clans, and we we move towards early civilization. Now, um, as people start settling, right, the world population increases, um, cities begin to develop temples become a focal point of religious society, right? Um, there's actual structure in place for religion. And we talked about this uh, at the onset. You know, as civilizations develop, written word comes into play, language comes into play, and that starts to impact religions as well. Um, and we see stories, they could start being recorded, jotted down now, and passed uh, through the centuries, passed through generations. And, you know, like I said before, as societies evolve, beliefs going to have to evolve as well, right? So before there was a very heavy um, emphasis on, you know, a rain god or, um, you know, the harvest god or anything like that, right? But it's still prevalent in, in today's stories, but it moves away from those type of things because in society, um, in civilizations now, they don't worry as, as much um, about food and things like that because it's it's compartmentalized to a certain category of citizens, right? So now we focus more on moral integrity, moral philosophy, enlightenment, and those things. So um, the first the first story or the first religion we're going to go into today is uh, Zoroastrianism or you know the Zoroastrians, right? Um, and that really takes place between 1400 12,000 BCE. Um, in Iran or you know or Persia right or modern-day Iran so Zoroastrianism is um, regarded or known as one of the oldest surviving religions and one of the first monotheistic faiths 
And for those of you that don't know, monotheism is essentially belief in one God. So the religion was founded by Zoroaster, and he was considered a prophet of the time, similar to, you know, Muhammad, Jesus Christ. Um, not exactly apples to apples, but comparative. So like I said, it takes we take place in Persia or modern-day Iran. So we'll go into some specifics here. So the name of their main god is Ahura Mazda, and he's the source of all good, and he's a symbol of order and truth. Um, now, you know, I don't know if that the car brand Mazda came from this religion, but it's definitely the same word, so I might have to do some digging on that one. So according to the religion, Ahura Mazda, um, like I said, the symbol of good, he's locked in this epic battle with, with an evil entity named Ariman. And they're in this, this fight since the beginning of time. So we see some early onsets of that yin-yang, uh, good versus evil type, type situation. Um, and that's common, right? That's common in a lot of religions that we're going to go into uh, as we go through this book. So both Ahura Mazda and Ariman are considered twin spirits, but they're not equal. They're not considered equal in the religion. Ahura Mazda lives in the light, and Ariman lives in the dark. And we see early themes here um, that dark is related to evil, right? And we know how that can carry out through history, right? Coming all the way to modern day. You know, people seem to be uh, afraid of the dark, and dark is n constantly associated with evil. So we go forward uh, talking about Ahura Mazda a little bit more. So human beings are actually considered to be one of Ahura Mazda's creations. Um, and the role of humans in this, in this world is to assist in keeping evil at bay. And how do they do that? They do that by performing acts of goodwill. So let's talk about this term called Asha for a second. A-S-H-A, -A, Asha. So Asha is the order of the universe. And people must do their best to keep this order through acts of goodwill, right? Um, Zoroaster, right, the prophet, his destiny was actually lined out, and his destiny is said to recruit humans for the fight between good and evil. So, you know, leaving out some of the minor details, um, Ahura Mazda ultimately defeats Ariman by reciting the, the Zoroastrian holiest prayer, which is called the Ahunavar. So, as, as Ahura Mazda recites this prayer, it sends Ariman back into the darkness. And now he's not going to stay in the darkness for too long, and he comes back, right? He comes back, he brings starvation, disease, pain, lust, right? Now, to me, what that means is, you see again here, that, that people are finding the need to explain things that are ultimately unexplainable, right? Um, when they get desperate. They're going to turn to an explanation. They need an explanation. They need logic behind it. Um, but they're going to turn to an explanation that is out of their control and attempt, attempt to gain some of that control back, right? Um, in Zoroastrianism, all people are said to have been born good. And then Ariman explains why they may end up, you know, f giving into temptation or end up, you know, doing wrong. And like I said, all these examples, these symbols, of good versus evil. Um, we, we can blame, so in the religion, we blame these, these vices and those who have ill will 
on this mythical entity, right? Ariman. Ariman means you do that. Or let's say like, you know, Satan can can take over, things like that, right? We 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 attribute those negative qualities to this uh this uh this third party, right? This this uh, spiritual mythical creature. So we have to fight this demon and we have to fight those vices ultimately, right? So um Ahura Mazda, you know, going back going back to their god, um he gives humans free will. So he gives them this choice between right and wrong. Um, and as you can see here, personal responsibility, morality are, are crucial staples of this religion. You know, people are have the choice um, to embark upon like the righteous path, right? So, um, you know, some of the values, right? Like Zoroastrianism implores people to be truthful, to be loyal, to be tolerant, um, forgiving, respectful, and that—that that is how you defeat evil spirits. And that's a good point, right? Um, how do we instill? How do we instill these values, right? Now, here you see a very like, not not to not to diminish anything, a very Lord of the Rings like like description of the religion, right? We have to defeat evil. Um, we have to you know choose the right path. You know, very very dramatic things like that, but it pulls on those emotional strings, right? Um, it encourages people to have all these or attain all of these um, very, very pious uh, values, truthfulness, loyalty, tolerance, right? All these things. Um, so anyway, just some food for thought on that one, right? But um, we, we go forward, right, to judgment, judgment after death. So in, in Zoroastrianism, individuals are judged twice. So they're judged once when they die, and then once at a last judgment day at the end of time, right? So, so during these judgments, people's moral character is going to be tallied up, right? And it's going to be evaluated. And if it's negative, they're going to go to hell, all right? A little abrasive, but that's where they're going to go. So what's interesting, though, about the religion is that they have the opportunity to redeem themselves if they correct failings in the afterlife, right? So if they correct their failings, they go to heaven and they can be with Ahura Mazda. Now, I, I truly love that concept, right? With, um, you know, repenting, forgiveness, all that stuff. Um, and bringing it to a relevant example, right? So, you know, at all of us, most of us went to, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school at least, right? So did we ever have teachers that um, were just so stuck in their ways, like, you got this answer wrong, and that's it. I'm docking you. You're done, right? Um, we've all had those types of teachers. But very few and far in between, you'll get a teacher, um, for example, um, I had a teacher in when I was in college that um, would, would grade our essays, and then once he was done with it, he would give us our grade and give us, if we weren't happy with it, he would give us the opportunity to rewrite that essay with his comments addressed. Now that's very that's great for for a lot of reasons. Now with a, with a math problem, I can get that right. It's very cut and dry. This is the answer, but you should always be given that opportunity to to fix your your error, right? But especially when you're grading English papers, right? Like Eng, grading English, besides looking for grammar, is is very subjective, right? It's a preference thing, I think. So whenever I had the opportunity to redo something, that would always give me the, give me um, motivation, right? Okay, you know, like I can work with this teacher. I can work with this guy. He's ultimately here to make sure I learn something, um, not just you know give me a, a number or assign me a grade and move on. Anyway, a little tangent there. 
Um, but so coming back to the religion, you know, teachings, teachings say that um, as the end of time approaches, people will grow pure. Okay, so in Zoroastrianism, as the end of this, this battle with Ahura Mazda and Ariman ends, people are going to grow pure. They'll stop eating meat, um, eventually stop taking in milk, plants, water, and they will eventually just need nothing. And that will be the end of Ariman, and ultimately time will end right there. So now, um, after that, people are going to be born again, but they'll all be pure. So they'll all ultimately need um, um, no sustenance, right? And I think I see what they're trying to get at, right? Eating meat is um, will, will take us into our next religion, but a form of violence, right? Um, all these things, ingesting milk, plants, water, is harming the environment. So ideally, I guess in this religion, humans would be completely self-sufficient. Um, but, you know, a, f a few last-minute points on Zoroastrianism is fire is a very important part of their culture, important part of their culture, okay? And it is with a lot of cultures, right? Hinduism, for sure. Um, fire is one of those elements, you know, in my opinion, that that's it's very inspiring, right? When you, you can stare at a campfire for a long time and just see the way the flames burn. Um, you can see the different colors of the heat, right? The blue, red, the whites in there, the oranges. Um, but one thing you know about fire is that it's very destructive, right? It can hurt you. It can, it can harm the environment. Um, and I think it's very interesting that Zoroastrianism really holds fire closely. Um, Ahura Mazda is, is very heavily associated with fire and the sun and the religion. And a lot of Zoroastrian temples um, always keep a fire burning. Um, and that symbolizes God's eternal power. And what, what I think is a crazy fact is that some fires have been burning for centuries. Now, I don't know how they exactly prove that, but I can, you know, a fire is not hard to maintain, right? A, a controlled one. So if this is in fact truth, that it's in insane that over the centuries, these people have been able to pass on their conviction and the fire is a symbol of that, right? So we're going to hop off of Zoroastrianism. Um, I would encourage anyone to read up on it. And, you know, I, know, I actually have heard of that religion uh, here and there. I just didn't know the, the types of people that follow it, right? I didn't know the region that it was uh, respective to. So very interesting, um, but a lot of common themes throughout the religions we're going to talk about today. So we hop off of Zoroastrianism, and we move to our next religion, which is uh, Jainism, right? So um, founded by Mahavira in the 6th century BCE in India. So um, Jainism is, I, I don't want to... I don't want to group it in with Hinduism, but it's it's an it's a religion um, that is uh, native to that uh, South Asian population, right? That part of the world. So, coming back to the religion, Jainism is a very ascetic religion. Now, what that means is it's a very um, monk-styled religion for those who follow it very very um, intricately. So it comprises of, you know, removing yourself from indulgences and practicing some very serious self-discipline. Um, so those who do believe in Jainism or follow this religion, their, their goal is to follow this self-discipline, this self-denial, um, and not partake in a lot of the indulgences that this world has to offer so they can attain this concept that's called moksha. 
Now, a staple of like Jainism and Hinduism is, is reincarnation. So moksha is attained when one is released from the cycle of birth, death, and reincarnation. So you remove yourself from that material existence. And without removing yourself, it's just a cycle of life, death, and rebirth, right? So, so let's, let's dive into that for a second. Now, I, I understand what's going on here. I understand the concept. But, um, so let's talk about this. Without removing yourself, life is just a cycle of death and reincarnation, right? So, um, my, my thought is, is that life is a gift, right? We're, we're always taught that life is a gift. Um, and let's talk about myself personally, right? So I believe in reincarnation, um, but I don't really remember my past life. So like, like theoretically, right? Like, I don't know if I believe in reincarnation or not, but let's say I do, right? Let's say I do for the, the purpose of this example. So I don't really remember my past life. So then maybe this whole circle of life and death isn't so bad, right? Um, and then what's the alternative, right? So if they say you're, you want to attain moksha, right? You want to attain moksha is, is me removing myself from that circle of life, rebirth and death is it heaven? Do I go to heaven? Um, if so, wouldn't wouldn't that get redundant after a while too, right? So those are just my thoughts, right? I don't I'm not here to knock any of these religions. I just want to dive into it a little bit deeper, right? But anyway, so so let me know what you guys think about that if you have any comments, right? So we talk about Mahavira for a second. So Mahavira is said to be the one that had founded the Jain religion. He's not regarded as a god in that religion, but he's one of 24 enlightened teachers of our era. Um, so, you know, they don't really go into that any deeper, but um, we move on to personal responsibility. So Jainism is a religion that has no deities, right? So there's no, there's no um, real, like, statue or anything like that, right, that you would pray to for the most part, right? There are some, I think, but not not woven into this text here. So all responsibility is placed on the actions of the individual, okay? So when we talk about Jain monks or nuns, they take five very strict vows um, and they adhere to a, a life of self-denial. Now, the first principle is ahimsa. So ahimsa means non-violence, okay? And I believe it's a Sanskrit word. So non-violence is more than just refusing to be violent against your fellow human beings. So in the context of Jainism, it carries over into animals um, all the way through the smallest of organisms. So, you know, one interesting story about this is that, so there was a time where I was at a friend's house who is Jain, right? And um, so we're, we're there in the backyard of their house um, having a barbecue, okay? So... Um, it's the summertime, and there's there's all these cicadas flying around. You can hear them, right? And they're harmless for the most part, but they're big bugs, right? They're 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 gross to me. I hate bugs. So, in any case, what happens here is that we're talking, we're chilling, we're hanging out, we're having some food, and um, this cicada lands on me, and I don't really notice it, right? But all of a sudden, it's on my shoulder. And it starts buzzing right by my ear like crazy. It buzzes. And I just like was taken off guard, right? I was taken off guard. So I flick it down to the ground and I just, I stomp it. I stomp it out, which is 
uh, not a good reaction. I shouldn't have done that, right? But I would just we got caught up in the moment, and I just stomped on it. Now, we just talked about how Jane's believe in nonviolence, right? I pretty they looked at me like I don't know, like I just murdered their children, right? It was like the worst thing that a guest could have done, and it was honestly awkward for the rest of the evening until we left because I had done that. And I, I really, you know, I didn't understand why it was like that. I had to talk to someone about it in the car on the way home. And I immediately felt terrible. I was like, man, bro, like, I, I don't know. Like, you know, like, I just get a little bit tweaked out with bugs and I'm sorry about that. Like, I, I can't, if I'm the, I can't be the person that like finds a bug in their house and like, like a spider and like guides it outside or just lets it be, right? Like, I can't sleep knowing that thing is there. So, you know, I'm so, I was sorry about that, but just like a, an interesting concept, um, ahimsa, right? Nonviolence all the way down to the smallest of organisms, which is great. So anyway, so that was the first principle. The, sex, the second principle is satya, right? And that means truth. The third is brahmacharya, which means celibacy, right? So you abstain from marriage um, and sexual relations. And a quick reminder, this is not for all Jains. We're talking about just the nuns and the monks, um, brahmacharya is the next one, which is not taking what is not willingly offered. Um, and then aparigraha, which is detachment from people, places, and things. Now, I think this is the most important one. The book says to James that ahimsa is the most important one. Um, but I believe that being detached from things, material things in this world, um, being detached from outcomes and things like that is um, one of the most important uh, principles that one can implement in their lives, right? Doing your best and staying detached from the results of those things, right? But uh, I'm not here to preach about that. But uh, yeah, so just some food for thought there. But we talk about these monks. So a monk or a nun is dedicated to just preaching, fasting, worshiping, and studying, right? So similar to a monk in the traditional sense. So let's talk about self-denial for a second. Um, so, you know, a lot of the stories uh, from these early religions may not be founded in the most logic. They've been try they're trying to get across a point, but some of the details are very, um, you know, like, like story-like. They're very unhumane in, in terms of the fact that, like, there's a lot of fictional creatures in there and whatnot. So talking about self-denial, right? They say that Mahavira, the, the one who founded this religion, he actually went naked when he embarked on his journey as a monk. And the reason this happened is because he was so deep in thought that he had no idea that as he was walking, his robe was caught on a thorn bush. Now, like I said, I don't, I don't want to knock anything about any religion, right? But I'm not exactly sure the value in that story, right? Um, Semantics aren't everything, but they are important, right? So, so I'm trying to. The moral of the story is that he was so deep in thought that he didn't notice like his surroundings, or didn't even notice that his clothes weren't on. Um, but let's think about that in modern day society, right? That would be like you know just coming trying to make it a little bit more realistic. Like imagine if I had just walked out of my apartment um, because I was so deep in thought with no clothes on, I would be in jail immediately, right? Um, so anyway, not trying to poke fun, I said, not trying to poke fun at these things, just a little bit, but, uh, yeah, just, uh, just some food for thought. So, um, you know, as you can imagine, with a religion like Jainism, 
there's probably many different interpretations on how the monk should behave, right? Um, the book says that some sects of Jainism, they believe that um, being freed from the cycle of birth and rebirth is impossible for women until they are reborn as a man. Now we see some obvious gender discrimination there, right? Um, and yeah, so like, right, like I said, historical religion, gender roles probably played an important part in development of these things. But another, another example about how religion really is um, applicable in many facets only to the time period, right? And I think an important part of religion is that it should be timeless. It should apply no matter what time period you are in. So um, coming back to Jainism, how, how are people supposed to live in this world? So, so let's say you're regular Jain, not your nun or your monk. Um, they'll, they won't take those five vows that I just talked about earlier, but they take a form of them, right? A more mild version of them. So they renounce violence, right? Ahimsa. They don't steal or lie, avoiding attachment to material things, like I talked about, and avoid lust. So Jains are also expected to be vegetarian, and that lines up with the nonviolence principle. And another thing I think is really great is that it's recommended that the work that they do, their occupation, or their main work of their life does not involve destruction of other forms of life. And I think that's a great principle. Right. So my thought with that is, is like you, you won't, you probably won't see a a true Jain who follows a religion closely, working in a a slaughterhouse or a steakhouse or something like that. Right. That's just my guess, but I'm just assuming um, your 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 adherent Jain would not be there. Um, so you know some of their festivals, right? Let's go back to some of that things because you know the the South Asian culture has a lot of. Um, you know, vibrant colors, um, a lot of song, um, a lot of festivals woven into the culture as well, right? So there's this annual festival called Samvatsari, right? And that's where Jains fast for eight days. And at the end of it, they're supposed to admit their sins of the year and vow not to carry over any grudges into the next year. And, you know, like, you know, the whole reason I'm here doing this only positivity stuff is that I think reflection is great, right? I think everyone should reflect. Um, and not holding grudges is a great practice, right? Um, and, you know, I've actually worked with some people in my corporate career who are strict Janes. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to, it's not apples to apples, but it's similar to seeing my Islamic friends who fast during Ramadan, right? So a lot of our, the Hindu faith, uh, their, their um, fasts are, um, they're not as intense, right? You can eat like yogurt and stuff. You can drink water during it, right? And things like that. Um, and I'm not sure if that actually carries over into Jain and Islamic fasts. Fast. Apologies. Um, but anyway, so I work with, I used to work with some people who would adhere to this eight-day fast. And, you know, whenever you're fasting like that, your body's in deficit and, you know, you're coming to work, you're exerting energy, you have to think you're going to get hungry, right? So they look a little zonked out. They look like zombies, right? Um, great people, but it's a, it's a good practice, I think, in self-denial for that short period throughout the year, right? If you think about the 365 days in the year, eight days out of the year, they're depriving themselves, which could be ultimately a good practice um, in, in self-denial. So, you know, our next point here is that meditation also plays a really 
big role in Jainism. Um, and I, I'm not sure if my friends do this, but a daily ritual in the Jain religion is to have a 48-minute session of meditation. And in that meditation session, you are supposed to forgive others and also ask to be um, forgiven, right? And, you know, it's a similar trait in maybe Christianity or the Catholic faith in terms of confession. Um, but if you think about it, 48 minutes is a long, long time in today's area era but you know i truly believe meditation is a good practice to to unplug and be at one with your mind and body now i try i try to do 10 minutes a day where i close my eyes and just put my phone away um and just you know sit in silence right that's even tough right it's very tough to do um so i commend anyone who can get the 48 minutes down um another principle going through jainism is karma and Jains believe heavily in karma. And so all, all of the good deeds that they perform, right, and, and self-denial will reduce their karma um, or their consequences of past actions. Now, I think karma is a great, great principle. Um, it can be interpreted in a lot of ways, right? It can be interpreted in a very, very um, minute way, right, in a very, very uh, minuscule way. Or people can take it to very lengthy extents. Um, and you know the, the the way people behave and their reasonings and their rationale behind it um, can 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 vary, right? I can behave ethically for a certain reason, and you can behave ethically for a totally different reason. So you know one of my main reasons for behaving ethically is because I think it um, it, it brings positive energy, right? And I think negative energy brings negative energy too, right? So my rationale is. If I put forth positive energy, hopefully I'll receive it, right? Only positivity. But uh, yes, that's like that's my main thing with karma, right? If I put out good vibes in the world, hopefully I'll receive good vibes as well. Um, so we move forward to how Jains worship. So similar to Hindus, Jains worship at a temple. And they usually have an elaborate temple-like structure in their house. So for those of you that are Jain or Hindu, right, you know that um, generally those who adhere to the religions pretty closely have some form of um, mandir, right, a temple or something in their house um, to symbolize the house of God. Um, the prayer method is actually called darshan, right? So the same, same in Hinduism. Um, so it's essentially what you do is um, you make eye contact with the image or the deity um, and usually recite a mantra while doing so, right? So um, the main symbol uh, in Jainism is a great one, and I think it encompasses their whole entire religion in one graphic. So obviously we can't see it, so I'm going to describe it to you. So um, the top of it represents um, the liberated soul, there's, there's another bracket right beneath it that consists of three dots horizontally. And that consists of the three jewels of the Jainism faith, which is right faith, right knowledge, and right conduct. Now, there's also something called a swastik. Now, let's not get confused with the swastika. It looks like the same symbol. But the swastik was actually around way before Adolf Hitler's swastika. Um, so the swastika is reversed, right? It's the opposite of what the Jain swastik looks like. So what the Jain swastik look, re represents is the four states 
that a soul lives in, right? Heaven, human, animal, or in hell. So one thing to note is that Jains do believe in a hell. Um, beneath that, there's also an open palm with a wheel painted in the middle of the palm. So the open palm is a reminder to stop and consider all actions. Now, I think this is great. So if you notice, with a lot of South Asian cultures, there's a lot of riskier involved. Now, I myself wear a bracelet, right? And it has an om on it. Now, I don't know if I identify as Hindu, to be honest, or any, with any religion, but the om is the frequency of the earth, and I keep it on my wrist um, because it reminds me of how to behave, right? It reminds me of how I should conduct myself outside, right? Or in any case. So um, I, I completely agree with um, these symbols, right? You know, um, keeping symbols around, you know, on your hands. Um, you know, I wear a chain on my neck that has an ohm on it as well. Um, is a reminder, right? Is a reminder to act well at all times. Um, there's also the word ahimsa written in the middle of that wheel in Sanskrit, I believe. And that's one of the main principles by which Jane lives, right? Jane's live. Um, which is nonviolence. So we talk about the main themes here of karma. Do the right thing, right? Self-denial and self-discipline. So, um, you know, I hope you guys enjoyed that brief breakdown of Zoroastrianism and Jainism. Um, and we'll move on to our third and final religion for today, which is Confucius, Confucianism. Confucianism, yeah, sorry. So Confucius developed his religion um, from the 6th to the 5th century BCE in China. And this is really interesting, right? Because Asian cultures are a totally different behemoth than Western cultures. So Confucius was one of the first thinkers um, to explore the innate goodness in people, right? So at the time, um, it was a divine privilege for those rulers to be in place, right? So what Confucius asked was, was it a divine privilege or was it inherent and able to grow in humans, right? This idea of goodness. And this is a time where people would never be able to rise above their class, right? Like if you think about being born into a society and your whole outcomes, your whole life trajectory has pretty much already been determined for you based on the class you were born into. So like we said, Confucius is part of this new breed of thinkers. Um, he was one of the first civil servants to advise the Chinese court. Um, and it was one of the first societies that people were able to advance in strictly on their own merit and not through inheritance or some kind of blood affiliation, which today sounds given, right? But um, back in the day, everything was blood affiliated. Everything was divine right, right? And if you weren't in that category, you were never going to get there, right? Um, at the time, so coming back to the Confucian, Confucian philosophy, um, the Zhao dynasty was ruling, and they believed that their authority was given to them directly from the gods. Um, and they thought the, the quality of humaneness, right, being civil, was only attributed to higher classes. And Confucius did not like that. Um, he... He thought heaven was open to everyone, right? Um, based on based on merit, 
Um, and in fact, he thought it was the duty of people to, to develop themselves and cultivate qualities that allow them to reach heaven. Um, so you see some really, really heavy emphasis on personal and moral responsibility here. So um, obviously Confucius started getting some followers. So um, a lot of his philosophy and his concepts were captured by his disciples and they were put together in this book called The Analects. So that book identifies a superior man known as Junzi. And um, that defines a person who devotes himself to good things. And personally, I like that, right? Only positivity, right? Someone who fully commits to positive activities and learning. Um, they learn for the sake of learning and pursue goodness for goodness sake, right? As corny as that sounds. Now, what, what I think, you know, coming back to modern day, right? What I think, and you know, I don't want to be bogus anyone, right? Um, I still think that concept of doing good things just for the learning is, is not as prevalent today, right? So let's think about COVID, right? Let's talk about this year. So, um, you know, you see a lot of people sprouting up looking to be influencers on social media, right? Starting pages. Um, and I think today, and especially in the United States, we are, we're very quick to try and monetize something, right? Like, for example, if, if I, I like photography, right? I like fitness, I like traveling, right? All these things. Um, I don't want to become any of those things for my profession, though, right? It's like, if I, if I start taking pictures, all of a sudden, I need to start a photography business, right? And start charging for it. Or if I like fitness, um, I have to become a trainer now. And if I don't become a trainer, I'm unsuccessful, right? And like, none of these things are bad, what I'm talking about. None of those things are bad. I, I completely support all those endeavors. But how about doing things just because they better us, right? And if you need income, every one situation is different. But doing things just for the knowledge of it um, and being accountable to those good habits um, is, is something that I think is very, very well worth it. So we come back to the religion. So how does, how does one become an ideal individual? So Confucius says one should hear nothing improper, see nothing improper, and do nothing improper. Now that might not be practical, but I get what he's trying to get at with that. Um, so Confucius really wasn't just out for self-cultivation. He wanted, he wanted everyone to cultivate good relationships with each other um, and behave properly in society, right? Because if everyone knows their role, they know how to behave, they know the standard operating procedures, what's the, where's the room for negativity or um, unhappiness in that? So one thing that I think is great about Confucius from what I've read is that he taught people from all walks of life and he, he believed that everyone could become virtuous. And I think that's a great principle, right? Um, knowledge, power, um, mental capacity should be available to everyone, right? And that's how you cultivate a good society. Um, wanting virtue and, and heaven to be available to everyone. And, and that's how we change behavior, right? That's some equality, some equity there. Um, but he also stated that that people should accept their roles in society and try not to rise above it, right? And I see what he's getting at there too, where, where sometimes ambition um, can, can lead to immorality, right? Um, but he really thought that a man should do what is proper to his station. And another great thing about that is that everyone's life is different, right? There is no one success metric for everyone, but um, everyone has their own path. You should do the best with what you are given. 
So, you know, I, I think I agree with most of what he's trying to get at, just some of the minor details. So we go forward on how, how a ruler um, should rule, okay? So Confucius says that leaders should lead by example and treat people with generosity and kindness. And the first part of that I think is great, right? Leaders should lead by example. Now, generosity and kindness are good staples of a leader, but I don't know if they're, they're, they're necessarily um, integral, right? So leading by example, totally agree with. And if a ruler does this, it would encourage loyalty and virtue, right? Um, going forward, the ruler should be the stable foundation around um, the revolving kingdom, right? So, you know, diving into that a little bit deeper, the ruler should not be the center of the kingdom, right? So Confucius says, if he promotes or enables citizens to be their best and act ethically, they shouldn't really need a hands-on leader to be the focus of society. And I think that carries over into corporate today, right? Like, who knows about those bosses that are very hands-off? In my experience, a boss who is more hands-off enables their employees will get the most out of their employees. You know, micromanaging doesn't really do much good, I think. So you'll see a lot of these themes in Buddhism as well, right? It puts control back in the hands of the people and less focus on a god or a third entity controlling things and more towards humans determining their outcomes, right? So a lot of people who follow this religion today believe Confucius was a god, but others believe that he was just a good teacher, right? So if we talk about some specifics of the religion here, um, Confucius also laid out five relationships, right? And we saw the five vows that the Jain nuns and uh, monks take. So let's talk about the five relationships, okay? So we have the sovereign-subject relationship, where rulers should be you know, benevolent and subjects should be loyal. So benevolent meaning like understanding, caring, all those things, right? Jovial. The second relationship, father-son. Parents should love their children, and children should be obedient. The third is the husband and wife, right? Husband should be good and fair. Wife should be understanding. <laughs> um, the brother-to-brother -brother relationship. Elder siblings should be gentle, and younger siblings should be respectful. Um, the friend-to-friend -friend relationship. Older friends are considerate, and younger friends are reverential, right? So what, what I see is this all comes back to the golden rule, right? Do not do to others what you don't want done to yourself, right? Be respectful. Um, reciprocate kindness with kindness, right? And just be good. Do good things out there. Um, and Confucius thought that if everyone followed these values, right, that we just talked about in those relationships, that society would be tied together and on the same page, right? And there wouldn't be too many differing opinions. Now, during the time of the Song and the Ming dynasties, the rulers really saw the importance of Confucius philosophy, right? And it was made the Chinese state religion. So that wraps up everything I have for today, right? But let's talk about one quote from the Analects before we wrap up. So, men's nature are all alike. It is their habits that carry them far apart. I think that is gold right there, right? All, all men's nature, right? Every person... Um, has a similar nature, but it's their habits. What do they commit to? Their self-discipline. That's what differentiates me from other people, right? So I'll let you all sit on that for a little bit. 
Um, I hope you guys are enjoying these podcasts. We're going to get into some uh, the the more prevalent religions in the next few. Um, but if you have any comments, feel free to leave me um, any of your thoughts. And remember, only positivity. Thanks, guys.